welcome to the Digiday Podcast. I'm Kaylee Barber, media editor at Digiday. And I'm Tim Peterson, senior media editor at Digiday. Tim, so you had the conversation this week and you spoke with Mark Garner, who is the executive vice president of global content sales and business development at A&E Networks. And... A&E Networks, I think, has an interesting approach to this kind of streaming digital television evolution, I guess you could call it. Um, But what, I guess, what about Mark did you want to talk about with this episode? Why did you want to have him on the podcast? Yeah, kind of for the reason you just alluded to, like, A&E Networks obviously is, you know, a one of the, you know, major TV network groups, but it's not necessarily on the level of like Disney, NBC Universal, Viacom CBS or now Paramount. Um, and it's also, you know, taking a different tact than those have. You know, they all have rolled out their standalone streaming services. Whereas A&E Networks has kind of approached streaming and digital video as well, um, more akin to like some of the digital publishers like a, a BuzzFeed or a, a Vox Media or um, you know, Team Whistle, where they're doing these um, you know, 24-7 streaming channels on free ad-supported streaming TV services like Pluto TV. Um, they're also, you know, Facebook, YouTube, those kinds of platforms are also really big business for any network. So they're kind of taking more of that. IP approach that the publishers are taking um, and kind of distributing through outside companies as opposed to, you know, what some of the TV networks are doing where they're really, you know, focusing internally and being a bit more insular with their approach. Interesting. Is there, I guess, like a, a financial upside of doing that? Is it, is it cheaper to kind of do that distributed IP route? Um, I think part of it is it can be cheaper because then you don't have the costs associated with having to develop a standalone streaming service and produce programming for that streaming service. And then, you know, in hopes of getting people to subscribe or at least, you know, install it, um, because that's, you know, one thing that's it's really expensive for a lot of these companies that are trying to compete in the subscription based streaming wars alongside Netflix, like, um, you know, Disney is spending, you know, more than $3 billion in the first quarter of 2022 alone on just programming and production for streaming. Um, not to mention, you know, the costs of maintaining Disney Plus and ESPN Plus and Hulu. So I think for a company like A&E Networks, yeah, it can be a bit more financially savvy to not go the route of standing up a standalone streaming service um, because you also don't know like how many people like it's the mobile uh, challenge of there was that stat of only you know people only use on average like seven apps on their phones and so you had this time where all these publishers were rolling out their own mobile apps but they kind of didn't really amount to much um, and publishers for better and worse, uh, found that they were better off just focusing on their sites, but also platforms like Facebook. And obviously you want to be, you want to diversify. And that's what A&E is doing with, you know, being on these various um, free ad sports streaming TV services, as well as the digital video platforms. Got it. All right. Well, I will let you get into it with Mark. I feel like he'll have some really interesting insights to this kind of digital television approach. So thanks, Tim. I'll let you take it away. Cool. Thanks, Kayla. 
Mark Garner, welcome to the Digital Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Tim. Mark, you have an interesting role. You oversee global content sales at A&E Networks. And I imagine two decades ago, that probably would have been a much simpler job than it is today, where <laughs> like where you can be selling content to just seems to be exponentially broader. What's the scope of the job? So the scope of the job, uh, as you said, is is much greater than it was two decades ago. It's probably much greater than it was five years ago, if you tell <laughs> okay. the truth. Uh, but the scope of my, uh, my remit, my job, is to sell all the content that we have in our library and all of our upcoming content that we're producing on a go-forward basis across a multitude of partners. So we sell to SVOD partners. You think about Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, Discovery Plus, Paramount, HBO Max, on and on. Uh, we sell to AVOD partners. So think of the Roku channel, Tubi, um, Crackle, you know, a uh, number of AVOD partners. We are also in the business of selling new channel brands, fast channels. We sell those to the likes of Samsung TV Plus and Vizio and the Roku channel and IMDb TV. Um, we also are responsible for the distribution of content into some um, probably less lesser known uh, outlets, but uh, education as one of them. So university streaming libraries. Um, um, we also sell content to uh, EST providers, electronic sell-throughs. So think iTunes or, or Google Play or Amazon when you can download to own. So uh, we're selling uh, across all of those different platforms. We also sell content on a short form basis uh, on YouTube on an AVOD basis or Facebook or Snapchat. So any number of places that we are, we're currently distributing, selling and monetizing content. And I mean, historically, there's been something of a waterfall when it comes to TV shows and how they get you know distributed or sold over time. They would you know air originally on one TV network and then may eventually be syndicated by another TV network. And then, like you mentioned, you could well at one point in time you could you know buy um, whole you know cases of a show at you know Blockbuster or uh, Tower Records, um, and then it was you know iTunes, and then eventually making its way to a Netflix or you know some of the streamers. To what extent is there a waterfall anymore where there was very clear like first window, second window, third window, on and on? Yeah, there continue to exist the waterfall. Or- we call it a window or windowing, uh, which you would hear in, in, in theatrical and television, but uh, there continues to exist windows. So in our case, uh, you know, we first and foremost is our linear networks. So we premiere on our linear networks and then we look at um, where, where are the opportunities to monetize that content most efficiently from platform to platform or partner to partner. So generally, generally, you would see content go from a linear exhibition, probably into an SVOD exhibition. So again, with the Hulus or Discovery Pluses or Netflixes, then moving into an AVOD, and then subsequently moving on to fast channels. Uh, the one that I didn't mention, and I should mention, and I always I, I always neglect to mention it, is on EST or download to own. That's only 24 hours after it's been on linear. So that's a very fast follow, but it's a model where somebody wants to own. But in the subscription models or the free models where you can access it vis-a-vis an app or a desktop or connected TV, 
what I just described are generally the, the windows that we, we subscribe to. I will say that uh, as compared to years ago, when you would have broadcast and then it would go into syndication and go into uh, various other windows, the windows are collapsing very quickly. They're getting tighter and tighter. And that's, uh, I think that's a trend that's going to continue. Right. And with that, because then there's also like, obviously, a &E networks, you all have this full portfolio of your linear networks. You have a &E, you have Lifetime, you have History, you have FYI, list goes on. Um, but then you also now have your own streaming properties. You have uh, these 24-7 channels on free ad-supported streaming TV services like the Roku channel and Vizio's um, watch-free platform. And then you also have your subscription-based um, streaming uh, services as well. And so I imagine that can make things a little even more complex because then when you're thinking of kind of that windowing, it's at what point do we want to window onto any &E network's own streaming properties versus getting that content on others who would then be paying you for the content. You're, you're absolutely right. And it is a, it's a complicated question. It's a complex set of um, considerations that we, we go through to figure out how those windows should work. But I'll say that first and foremost, our owned and operated brands are most important to us. We are, we have been in the business of building brands for 30 plus years. Uh, we'll continue to be in that business of building those brands. And so those are going to be first and foremost. And how can we, uh, continue to uh, demonstrate ownership over great quality storytelling through the brands that we create. So those subscription services are very important to us. Uh, you're referring to History Vault and Lifetime Movie Club and Annie Crime Central, uh, and then the fast brands that we create. So we're, we're, we're first and foremost going to want to make sure that those brands are healthy and that they're strong and that we use our content uh, to fortify those because that's where we have the greatest control. That's where we have the greatest uh, leverage in terms of how we manage how those channels are presented and curated and monetized. So, um, and that 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 said, um, the market for um, third parties to engage with our content, buy our content, is very important. It's a growth market. It's a very important market for us. So, there's a balancing act between the two. Right. Yeah. The balancing act from an outsider's perspective, that balancing act is the most interesting part. I imagine from an insider's perspective, that balancing act could be the most overwhelming part. Is there, or to what extent is there some sort of equation of, okay, we have ice road truckers and obviously that airs on any &E networks own linear networks initially, but after, you know, that, especially you have this library now, how do we like what are the best ways we can be generating revenue from this from a like broader distribution standpoint what are kind of the steps or the questions that you answer or what's the like answer that you're kind of driving to is it just how much money can we get over the next five years from this show or is it something different it's it's a combination of you know being driven by by the profit principle how can we continue to make money and monetize this but uh, all jokes aside, more, more importantly, it's where does the content work best? So, you know, every, the, the great thing about the environment these days is that there is a, there's a place for everybody. There's a place to go if you enjoy um, uh, ice road trucker type of content, or if you enjoy paranormal, or if you enjoy movies. And every platform has a different audience composition. They have a different way in which they are reaching advertisers and marketers to, to monetize that content and deliver messages. So we have to take all of that into consideration. We have to figure out where's the best place for the content at the best time. 
And then how does that create an opportunity, um, you know, subsequent in parallel in time to where else that content can be? So it, it's, it's both a, a quantitative exercise as well as a very qualitative exercise that takes into a lot of uh, demographic, psychographic, environmental factors about where is it going to work best? What I love about all of this that we're going through right now is that something that used to probably only have a life cycle on a television sh- on a television network for a couple of years now can be extended for years and years and years if you do it right. And, um, you know, new audiences can be finding this content for, for years to come. And it's new to them. It's great. It's premium content. Uh, it's just a question of getting it right in terms of where and when. Right. Yeah. Cause I mean, it, it's kind of like that four dimensional chess idea. Cause I imagine like a very simple way to go about this could be, okay, who's offering the biggest paycheck now. But then I would think a consideration would have to be, okay, but this paycheck now, how could that affect future paychecks that others may be willing to pay? Like maybe one streamer is willing to pay the most money at this moment, but if is that going to affect how much an AVOD would pay later on down the line? Are you seeing trends there? Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. There's there's that consideration. I think in the early days, you know, there were a lot of, there was a lot of money being spent on content to build platforms, and uh, in the short term, in the short run, it was great to take that money and to to build your your your, your coffers that way. Uh, with this proliferation of so many different opportunities, and it does go back to windowing as well. Uh, this is a long game for us. It really is. You know, we've been in this business for 30 years and we intend to be in this business for much longer. So it's a long game for us. So while there might be some really interesting checks that could be written in the near term, they may, they may in fact not uh, take into account the opportunity cost of the long-term value, the lifetime cycle, the lifetime value of this content. And with that, like, I'm then curious, like how you manage that lifetime value, like Disney, which is you know one of the joint owners of any networks during the, I think it was the Michael Eisner era, like there was the Disney vault strategy. Oh, we're going to take Cinderella and we're only going to release it on at that time VHS for a certain period of time. And then we're putting it back in the Disney vault, which was this completely made up concept, but it introduced scarcity and then like created value around getting it and urgency around getting it. Do you do anything like that with any of your programs where you're just not selling, making everything available? Sure. There, there are, there are, um, franchises that we have that we think by, um, preserving them in a certain way, they will create greater value for us in the long run. Um, you know, and it's, it's, it's really difficult to say, you know, what is going to sort of age well and grow over time. Uh, and, and a lot of that has to do with seeing how well it performs in its initial days on, on the linear networks where we premiere them. Um, but we have, it, it, there's some interesting stories. We have a great story where, um, we had a show, uh, Kings of Pain, which, you know, we had on the History Channel. It was a really interesting show. These two guys going around to various uh, countries and various locations. And, and, and they basically, they were actually, they were, it was very scientific. They were measuring pain thresholds through different bites, <laughs> snake bites, insect bites, things of that nature. But honestly, it, it didn't perform as well as we would have liked it to perform on History. But it did really, really, really well in some digital environments. And it became an opportunity for us to uh, produce a second season and have those digital environments be the real reason why we were uh, continuing with that show. And then it made more sense for history 
uh, and it could live on our air and not have the same expectations for performance. On the other hand, we have certain shows that um, are, are do, do extremely well on linear. And we think, well, over if we preserve those and we don't put those out into the, the marketplace as soon as we might other shows, those shows, one, for the preservation of the network uh, and, and in, in its ability to, to, to monetize them on the network business model, and then eventually creating greater value in either SVOD or AVOD or FAST or EST or other, wherever it might be. Um, we, we look at that as well. So uh, we apply a little bit of both. Got it. And I know on the traditional pay TV side of things, the pay TV providers or the MVPDs is the acronym. There are certain rules in terms of like which, you know, the programs that are airing in current seasons on your networks, what you can do with them, how you can make those available elsewhere. But it also seems like some of the pay TV providers are kind of updating their stances a bit or getting a bit more lenient or at least being more willing to negotiate because they understand, okay, not as many people are tuning in. Also, you know, companies like Comcast have Xfinity uh, Flex, I think it's called, um, which is like their effectively connected TV platform. Are you seeing shifts in how whatever leniency the pay TV providers are giving you with how you can be distributing your content? Yes, we are. Uh, and I think there's a number of reasons for that. I think you, you touched on it. The MVPDs or these pay TV providers are recognizing the shift in behaviors of consumers, and they want to be responsive to consumers. Um, many of these, many of the, the the pay TV providers offer access to these very apps uh, and services that carry this content um, on their set top boxes, on their gateways, on their platforms. And what they're very interested in doing is serving the customers fully and as wholly as they want to be served. Uh, I think the other thing that um, must be said is that some of these some of these operators they actually own services themselves, uh, where they are employing the same strategy where their content, uh, where they own both content, they own platforms, and they own cable services. They are deploying their content differently than they would have five years ago across the various platforms that they have. And recognizing that they themselves are doing it, um, and it makes sense for them, makes sense for others. Um, I think the other factor that plays into that is that for the companies, these multimedia companies that have streaming platforms as well as pay TV platforms or as well as con- um, studios or, or networks, uh, those streaming platforms are also looking to acquire content. They're looking for content in different windows and different ways than perhaps were contemplated when those original restrictions were put into place five, six, seven, 10 years ago. So there's a recognition and an acknowledgement of the evolution of the industry. Does it complicate any of the carriage talks though with the pay TV providers? Because you know now they can not only be negotiating with you on distributing your linear networks, but they may like come in and say, okay, but actually we would like to figure out some way where we could be distributing History Vol, which is a subscription-based streaming service that A&E Networks owns and operates. Or we, we would like to you know be the ones to get the library to Ice Road Truckers exclusively. And please, can you take it off all the other streaming services and other places that you distribute it? Yeah, uh, I, I would. Yes, it, it does make for a more complex and nuanced uh, relationship and negotiation. Um, I don't. I wouldn't necessarily characterize it as complicates it. I think it it gives greater optionality in terms of the things that we can do together. 
uh, use the example of History Vault, or we also have Lifetime Movie Club and and Annie Crime Central. We're very eager to have distribution as ubiquitous as possible. So working with the pay TV operators who may now be interested in that is is, is something we welcome. Um, you know, including our content on some of the services that they are launching or have launched is also interesting to us because it's another way for us to be able to to monetize that content and get it in front of, of consumers who may not have otherwise seen it. So uh, while it is these negotiations are complicated and nuanced in and of themselves, I think it just provides for greater optionality and what we can do together and how we grow the ecosystem together. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor and we will be right back. Mark, you were talking about um, the ubiquity of, you know, where your content can be, but, you know, historically that like, ubiquity can be a lot easier when it's, you're purely just selling to outside parties, but a and Networks has this stable of both the fast channels that we've talked about, the free ads, you know, the 24 seven channels running on free ad supported streaming TV services, but then you also have your subscription based streaming services as well. And so, you know, now part of the consideration is, okay, how do we want to best manage this library of programming? not only in terms of what we take out to the market, but how we make sure that we're getting the most bang for our buck on our own properties as well. How, to what extent has that complicated the consideration or led you to update how you think about managing this programming portfolio? Um, it's gotten very complicated, I'll tell you that. <laughs> no, I, I won't lie about that. Um, it, but it's made it really interesting because what we've had the experience of doing and we've had the opportunity to do is really play in a lot of different venues. Uh, we have the subscription services, we have the fast services, we license to AVOD, we license to third-party SVOD. Uh, and it really just goes back to that there's an audience for everything and there's audiences that want things in different ways. So uh, our experience is, you know, as, some, as a company that does not uh, yet or is not in the market with a major streaming platform, an aggregated streaming platform, uh, like some of our compatriots, um, it's, a, it's an opportunity to sort of extend our brand, get IP out into different places, um, and, and have a, a sort of a, a, a quote-unquote global presence with our content. Do you have any plans to roll out like an omnibus streaming service? Yeah, I can't comment on what plans we may or may not have on that. So, <laughs> but uh, we're we're certainly watching the we're watching the um, the the landscape all the time. Got it. Um, and so we're we're not in that business right now, and we are we're we're you know a company amongst the land of giants when there are, there are many of those. Uh, so right now we're we're very happy with where we sit in the in the ecosystem where we have the opportunity to distribute uh, our content broadly across a number of different places. Got it. it. But I imagine like as part of your due diligence is just you have to be in your role playing with hypotheticals um, and playing with hypotheticals with your team because okay things change so much as we've learned the past two years um and one thing that we've seen with some of the other tv network groups is um they've had to they've had programming that they've licensed widely and then they decided oh we do want to have a you know omnibus streaming service and they've needed to figure out ways to bring it back i mean in in some cases like they still have yet to like paramount i think it's still another two years before they'll get south park onto 
Paramount Plus. And so you have all of this programming farther out. How do you think now about managing that? Are you striking shorter term licensing deals just to give yourself options if you do at some point decide you do want an omnibus streaming service? Yeah, it's a great question. And and uh, we are we look at that all the time. And so we manage a lot of that through the options that we put into these agreements. Um, and so everything from term um, to other, the term of the agreement, the length of the agreement to, to other terms within the agreement where we have optionality about how we can use content, uh, under what conditions content can be treated differently. Um, it, those are... And every agreement is 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 somewhat different. So um, it's 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 uh, it's it's something we have we keep in our sights that we always want that ability to be able to pivot and to be able to meet the market where the market uh, is and with our content and with the appropriate business model. So all of our agreements, uh, as we have been going forward for the last couple of years. Uh, certainly have options built into them. Like what would those options be? Oh, Tim, Tim, you're asking me for, for like state secrets here. I love um, state secrets. <laughs> look, it's really hard for me to, to sort of outline any specific term because every agreement is different. Uh, but like we said, you know, the, the length of an agreement, uh, performance metrics in agreements, uh, you know, how well is content performing, how well are fast channels performing and whether or not that allows us certain flexibility. Um, you know, and there it's, 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 uh, it varies. It really does vary. And it's, it's hard for me to sort of articulate any specific one without, uh, that becoming obvious to a specific agreement. Got it. Fair enough. It, are there trends that are kind of more across agreements though? Like for example, like, is it generally we used to be signing five year long deals and now we're just doing one year? Yeah, that's definitely a trend. Uh, you're seeing shorter deals getting done. Uh, as much as many of us would like those deals to be longer, the deals are getting shorter. Um, so the deal cycles are, are happening more frequently. And I imagine that can be advantageous to you because, I mean, one thing we haven't talked about is a Networks has been pretty successful when it comes to the social video platforms, YouTube, Facebook, like you do big numbers in terms of viewership there. And I believe you do like meaningful revenue on those platforms as well. And that that seems like another way of you can then generate an audience, get generate a following for shows there and then use that to then you know, help you when you're um, in those meetings talking about, you know, who you want to be selling a show to. How have like these digital video platforms figured into the equation for you all? Yeah, they've, they've, they've figured in very prominently. So you're right. Uh, we have done quite, we've done quite a good job of working with partners like uh, YouTube and Facebook and, and others to curate uh, and create channels on those platforms to curate content into various other aspects of their platform. And the wonderful thing about them is that they are so they're data driven and we see data almost immediately. So we can iterate very quickly in terms of what's working, what's not. And the team that works on that brings that information back to the broader business and lets our programmers, our sellers, our marketers, uh, our research and analytics people know what the data is saying, what are consumers doing? It's, it's behavioral. We're seeing the actual behaviors of what's happening on these platforms. And so it's, it's great information. It's great data. It's great insight to be able to determine, 
Should we be making a show of this type or a show of that type? Should we increase our order of, a, of an existing show? Um, should we um, uh, uh, you know, market differently? So those, those platforms are extremely beneficial to us. And, and yes, they have become fiscally material as well. Got it. And and then the fast channels, like, you know, that was similarly a way for you to take this, you know, library of IP that you have and get a new audience for it, get you know, new revenue for it. Generally, these are ad supported channels and you can do you know, revenue shares deals or you can have your ad sales team led by Peter Olson. Like that just gives them more inventory to be selling, especially streaming inventory, which we really valuable but with those channels historically you all have just been taking your library programming the stuff that had aired on the linear networks and putting on the fast channels have you considered moving into original programming or at least stuff that would premiere first on the fast channels and then maybe you would take elsewhere after that yeah it's it's an ongoing conversation about at what point does original programming become a must-have or a need to have on fast channels right now uh, our point of view is that we've got such a rich, deep, vast library of content, and it's being viewed and seen by people who haven't seen the content before. Um, when you think about a show being a hit show on linear television, uh, if you have several million households that are tuning in at a specific time on a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday night, whenever it might be, that's a hit show. And it's great. And that's a show that's going to get picked up. It's going to get more seasons. Uh, but there are 115, 118 million other households that haven't seen the show. And so Fast, as well as these other platforms, is an opportunity to bring new, quote unquote, content to those viewers because they haven't seen it yet. So the demand for us to have to do originals is not as urgent as it might appear on the surface. However, I will say that original and being able to position things as original and, and, and coming out to the market with unique and new is always a great marketing tool. Uh, and there are advantages to original content. So that said, we understand the importance of original and we'll continue to look at at what point in time does it really become necessary for us to introduce original content onto the fast channels. But for now, I think we have a, we have a significant opportunity by bringing uh, new content to people who haven't seen it on fast. And I imagine part of the conversation is, well, if you're doing originals, then that's new costs that you're adding. And so that's going to eat into profits and maybe like the profits work out and are even bigger, but you know, if you're taking Axman and putting it on the fast, well, that's yeah. kind of free money in a way. Look, I, I, fast channels is, is if you, you can think about it in terms of, it's like broadcast or cable 2.0. It's the, it's the, it's the next coming of, of, of those platforms. And when you think about cable channels, when they first came into existence and even broadcast uh, some of the broadcast networks, what they built, they had to build first was audience. And they built that audience by acquiring lower cost programming. Um, and so we have this ability to no cost programming because we own it and we have to build audience. And once you build audience and you need to differentiate and provide something unique and distinct for them to come, that's when originals comes into play. So it is certainly something that we have to consider for the future, but it's not an absolute for today. 
Got it. And Mark, you all launched your first Fast Channel in October 2019, and now you have a portfolio of Fast Channels, and you've been at it for two and a half years, roughly. Are you seeing, in, like, in that time, one of the newer developments was, and A&E Networks was part of this, Fast Channels historically were kind of like broad category-based channels, and then there was a trend of show-specific channels. You all have a number of show-specific channels, Axemen, Ice Road Truckers are two that come to mind. Are you seeing any like new developments now or expecting to see them this year in terms of um, the next evolution of these Fast Channels? Um, from a content curation point of view, I think what we're seeing is many of the platforms themselves are starting to develop their own channels and create uh, their own uh, branded services. And they're looking to either acquire or create new for those channels. So I think that's a, that's, that's an emerging trend in the fast channel space. Uh, and while I say it's an emerging trend in the fast channel space, uh, if you look at um, the old, the, the, probably the most um, mature or most entrenched in the fast channel space, which is Pluto TV, you know, they've been doing that for a while where they're creating their O&Os based on the content that they uh, they can access from Viacom and, and others. But uh, you're seeing the OEMs and other platforms really start to pay attention to curating their own experiences with content. So I, I think that'll be a trend that's um, uh, definitely on the not on the rise and it's happening and, and we'll be seeing more and more of over the next year or so. Yeah, and some of them have even been... Um you know, baking that into their distribution deals where they'll sign a deal with um, a media company to for that media company to distribute their own uh, 24-7 channel on a fast service. But then as part of that to say, oh, also we need you to license us programming, which can, there are pros and cons to that. On the one hand, like that can be more money. It can be more eyeballs for that programming. On the other hand, like does that become competitive then or take some viewership away from that media company's own fast channel? Exactly. Exactly. Um, you, you, you've done your homework, Tim. You, 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 know, you know how these deals are being done. <laughs> but you, you're exactly right. It's uh, it is a, it's a consideration. It's a, it's a complex question. You know, how does it impact uh, the business where you have greater control um, how does that play out in terms of the business model and where does audience get developed and how does audience get generated between the services? Um, but yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. It is, it's becoming a trend in the deal-making as well. And lastly, like to what extent are you seeing any differentiation in the fast market? Cause I mean, one of the virtues of fast, especially for a company like A&E networks is you can create one fast channel and then distribute it in all these different places. You all work with Whirl. Whirl makes it very easy to kind of, you know, set it and forget it or plug and play um, with these different fast platforms. And I think it was like a year or two ago, talking with some folks at different media companies, different fast channel operators, there was kind of the notion of, are we going to see some sort of consolidation, some shakeout in the fast space where we have all of these different fast platforms and then all of these different channels on the fast platforms and it just becomes kind of oversaturated and hard to see any differences among them, especially when they're all available on the same connected TV platforms oftentimes. Are you expecting to see any sort of shakeout or is it just we're a very homogenous market at this point? 
No, I do. And the fast providers are talking about that very specifically about how do they differentiate? What can either their partners bring that differentiates them from the others that they're competing against? Or how do they create their own? And that goes to that comment I made earlier in terms of trends. Uh, the reason that they are creating and curating their own content or their own channels is so that they can differentiate. So that when they're marketing to consumers, you know, the, the, the interesting thing about this fast world, the OTT world, which is very different than the cable world, uh, is that you know, in cable back in the 80s and 90s and 2000s when it was really growing and burgeoning, you know, you had one system that carried a certain, you didn't have a competitor until satellite came along, but there were no competitors. In this case, you may have uh, platforms that not only have their own fast channel presentations, but they carry apps that have fast channels within them. So then how do you differentiate? So uh, yeah, that is that is certainly a big trend. And, and you're also seeing, if you look across various platforms, uh, many services that were there a year ago are not there now. Uh, they're they're going through that process of saying, "Hey, is do we really need 300 channels, or should we have 250, or should we have 200?" Um, and I've talked to several of the platforms who have already started that process of saying, "Yeah, you know, our low performing um, unknown channels are they're they're not going to make it, you know," and and they're starting to winnow those off of the net off the platforms. Right. Yeah. It's funny. It's like, uh, <laughs> we're going to start having skinny bundle conversations when it comes to the fast <laughs> services. Oh God, not skinny bundles again. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then Mark, before we go, so we have, you know, the upfront cycle coming up and obviously like you're on the content sales side of things, you're not on the ad sales side of things, but to what extent are you uh, thinking about like how you're managing audience or like programming for audience or you just should be in content for audience um, and how that can then be applied to the ad sales team or kind of leveraged by the ad sales team in the upfront. Sure. You know, we're working, we work very closely with our research and analytics folks. We work closely with our, um, uh, our marketing teams, everybody who would be involved in that process of audience development and being able to present what our audiences look like out to advertisers. Um, you know, we, it's, it's, um, with the, the the growth in the demand for connected TV inventory, um, we realized that 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 fast and, and other places are are really where advertisers are looking to. So um, one of the primary things that we're, we're focused on at, on fast is really getting the best understanding of what that audience is and how they operate. One of the challenges, or one of the biggest challenges we have, is that there is no third-party validation like there is in cable and broadcast of what audiences are, who's watching, when they're watching, those kinds of things. And so we're working really hard to um, try to standardize with our partners the way that we're receiving information, getting information, and so that way we can uh, communicate it back out to marketers and advertisers in a meaningful way. Uh, so it's a big challenge, and it's and it's one that's going to take take some time to to, to figure out and. Uh, Get the partnership of, of our partners, the the measurement, the delivery platforms, everything to get to a, a sort of a standard way of being able to talk about audience and define that audience. Um, so you will see, you know, but at the same time, you see what's happening in the broadcast and cable world with how audience is defined and who who can define it, and that's splintered. So who knows if we'll ever get to a point where <laughs> where where it's it's completely. Um, understood on a ubiquitous basis, but I, I think you know 
the flip side of that is uh, everybody's content, everybody's platform is different and it should be, it should have the opportunity to be told differently. That story needs to be able to be told differently. Hopefully the people that we're talking to can receive that information and understand that information in the way that it's intended. Right. Yeah. Cause it seems like the financial incentives are definitely there. And I mean, any networks have, has been one of the loudest voices when it comes to this idea of total audience of, you know, let's kind of take into account everyone who's watching in all these different places. And I mean, a lot of that is unlinear. Let's not just be 18 to 34, 18 to 49, but kind of acknowledge that a lot of older folks watch unlinear and that's fine because those people generally have money and often have more money than an 18 year old <laughs> would have. Um, but then on the streaming side of things, it's okay. That's where we can kind of fill in that gaps with the younger audiences. But to your point, you need that data, you need that measurement there to be able to prove out that these audiences are incremental to each other and that there is incrementality there. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, Mark, I could talk to you for hours, but I, if this conversation hasn't shown enough, you're very busy and you have a lot of other things to be uh, thinking about. So I'll leave it there. But thanks so much for coming on the show. Tim, I always love talking to you. And so anytime, thank you so much for having me. And thank you for listening to the Digiday Podcast. Please don't forget to share this episode with someone who you think would enjoy it. You can even rate us on Apple Podcasts if you like. And we'll be back next week with another episode. Thank you.